guys. Welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day for an interview. I know I say that every time, but I'm so excited because this particular guest, I have been hunting high and low for months and the universe just didn't want to play. It just, it, we had from, from time changes in the sense of summertime, wintertime, suddenly we were an hour out expecting each other and it was chaos. And now, I mean, for crying out loud, now, right now, when we are actually recording that, my guest is beaming in from the UK, where right now it is hot as hell. We are recording that in a, in, in a record-breaking summer. So fire is right now absolutely there. And maybe maybe it was meant to be that we, that we had to wait for our, our interview because my guest, Pam Bourne, is also known as the lady in the mask a woman whose destiny was literally forged in fire um fire and and chaos turned her life around and she is now here to make this world a better place and she has been doing so for close to quarter of a century now she is a real kick-ass woman um, she was woman of the year at one stage. There are accolades. Uh, we could speak now half an hour about the accolades. Um, you look into the show notes down there. You will see them there. I'm so excited, Pam Warren, that you are on my show. Welcome. Thanks, Stefan. And it's lovely to be here. I'm really glad we made it in the end. <laughs> so there are very few stories um like you trauma comes in all kind of shapes and sizes i mean trauma can be like someone speaks to you in an early stage of your childhood and that can be incredibly upsetting um and can leave deep deep metal scars in other cases you you know there can be bigger things but i think you are pretty there with with sort of the crown so i mean when other people were worrying about Y2K, 1999, um, were worrying about, uh, God, the winter is coming, it's October, boring, and will, you know, will the world stop? And <laughs> when the clock goes to midnight, you had other problems. Tell us a bit what happened to you. Yes, that's right. I was um, on a commute from my home into London to go on a training course and my train which was a high speed train hit a train coming out of Paddington at over 130 miles an hour um the carriage i was in was directly behind the engine and the fuel tanks caught fire and swept through our carriage i was lucky enough to survive but i was very badly burnt i lost my entire face um, I've lost all the skin on my hands, the scars on my legs, etc. And unfortunately, 31 people did die during that incident. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a long time ago, but it still evokes emotions when I think back to it. And However, you, I was lucky you. enough to survive. Many Absolutely. didn't. Look, it, it this where you were talking about the, the 31 people. I thought I, I thought I read a higher number, but you're talking at least 500 people who were injured and whose life forever changed. And it, right. it is it is 
crazy to imagine something like that. You imagine that in a third world, maybe somewhere, but not in London. Okay, not Paddington, not not in in the so-called first world. I mean, this was weird. Did you ever think about disasters? What was your life like before? You you were saying you were going on a training course. What were you doing? What were you what were you up to? <laughs> Back then, I was a financial advisor. I had my own company, and it was doing very well. Thank you very much. Huh. So really. The way I've always looked at it is I was on that train minding my own business and this um, incident happened. I never call it an accident and I'll explain why later. Um, There had been train crashes before. This is the awful thing. And yes, I used to catch the train and it would flash into my head as I was boarding the previous train crashes. But I would assume they'd done something about it. They'd improve things, they'd change things. Turns out they didn't. They actually put profit before human lives because they worked out it was cheaper to pay compensation after something, whether you died or were severely injured, than it was to put right what was wrong on our railway system at the time, which I found totally unacceptable. And even when I was in hospital, when all this was beginning to come to light, I thought to myself, well, I don't want anyone else going through what I've just been through. Luckily, there were 81 of the survivors agreed with me. So we banded together. We set up the Paddington Survivors Group. I was the chairwoman. By then, I I was out of hospital, but still undergoing operations. Um, They lasted for two years. And... I had to wear a plastic mask where I've been grafted from my top lip upwards. The plastic mask was a very hard perspex mask and it was there to stop the scarring developing on my face, which thankfully, touch wood, um, it did do its job. I've always thanked the mask for the face I've got now. Um, But it was while I was wearing this mask, we were savvy enough to realise the media like a picture and a woman in a mask taking on the government, the rail industry, and saying, why, uh, what has happened? Why have you put profit before our lives? Um, That obviously made for a good story. So they supported us. Um, But it took us five years of hard campaigning, um, meeting up with all the heads of the industry, even going as far as Parliament, and meeting up with ministers, etc., trying to get them on board to commit to change that um, it took five long years, which obviously had a bit of an effect on my own personal recovery. Which is interesting that you say that, because, I mean, here you were, uh, in order to be a financial advisor and doing well, you have to be kind of a very focused and driven woman. That would have been your time planner, and that would have been your your very structured life, busy as. And then suddenly someone presses the pause button. And in your case... Well, I actually... Sorry. sorry, I actually call it... It ripped it up. I had nothing left. My company disappeared because I was too... It would take me eventually 10 years to recover. Wow. Um, That wasn't just the physical side. The physical side, really, I came to terms with after two years. And even though it wasn't perfect, um, and I'm still suffer with some of the physical injuries 
even though it wasn't perfect, I'd had enough of the operations. So I, I was the one that turned around and said, you know what, this is good enough. Um, it was the mental side that was hardest. And that really took me, as I said, 10 years in total to overcome. And in a way, because I was driven and wanted to change the rail industry for the better, that's that because my energy was going into that, it wasn't going into my looking self-care, my looking after myself. Um, so therefore, I think my mental recovery took longer because of the campaigning and the you know, trying to make change. So would I have recovered quicker, better without all that going on? I don't know. I can't change things from the past. And I'm still quite proud of what I managed to achieve. So <laughs> if, if it's a trade-off, I'm happy to accept the trade-off. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> There's so many what? things you just... That insight alone is worth worth your weight in gold uh, we often not get sidetracked but we take on resentment anger um frustration there is all this grief process going that often is very staggered and goes back and forth and anger and denial, resentment is all part and parcel of that. Of course, when you have got a very justified cause, like in your case, uh, revolutionizing essentially the safety of the rail network in the UK, bloody hell, um, that is, I can see where that can preoccupy you so much that you yeah. probably don't even realize what is going on start off with that but we also no, have to I mean, say that in the 90s or late 90s early 2000s now i don't think that the care of survivors of victims was as well established i don't think that ptsd and and the crisis services i mean was there actually help there for you or was that all a bit wishy-washy ad hoc um here's a number you can call if you want to no, actually, that's one of the interesting things. The physical injuries, yes, they looked after um, because they couldn't do anything else. However, the, the mental side, because I got when I got taken to hospital straight after the crash, because I was so badly burnt, I was put into a coma. So I was in a coma for three weeks. By the time I woke up and then... Um, they described to me the physical injuries, the operations I'd have to go through, the fact I'll be in hospital for over three months. By the time I came out of hospital, all the help had gone. Because it had been, the, the incident had happened, people had forgotten about it already, um, which was another thing to contend with. It was almost like, yes, I survived, but actually I got forgotten somewhere along the line. Uh -huh. So I never actually got any help from the state or any sort of community infrastructure. I was not to know the consequences of what I'd just been through. It was only after about two years, which was when I had the alcoholic um, stage and eventually tried to commit suicide, that... That's when I suddenly realised, or my family helped me realise, to be honest, um, that I had a problem. And 
from there, we then got myself the, the professional help that I needed. And thank God we did, because I don't think I'd still be around had we not. And yes, you're right. PTSD was known about back at that time, but I think people just thought it went away after a little while. Mm. Or they they associated it with only with army veterans, you know, mm. nobody else suffered. But you can get PTSD from all sorts of um things. And one, if if somebody has a trauma in their life, and I'm not talking about big things like train crashes or war or anything like that, but it can be something very, very insignificant or it could be something that's fairly normal, like divorce or losing your job or things like that. You can get PTSD off the back of, and it takes astute professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists. They shouldn't be um, a taboo. They really do know when to diagnose somebody with either minor depression, which can be treated, or um, they've got full-blown PTSD. And because mine took so long for anyone on the health side to pick up on, I've now got it chronically, which means I cannot get rid of it. I have had, just had to learn how to deal with it and interweave it into my normal life. So it's also become part of me. I am partly PTSD. So true. Same here, same on my side. Um, and I mean, in all fairness, there is... There are, if you look at the figures of PTSD and let's say motor vehicle accidents, after a major motor vehicle accident, it's about one in three will develop a form of PTSD. Um, now, sometimes, yeah, things can get better over time, but often enough, it doesn't. And often enough, it can get very chronic. And I mean, by definition, we're talking three, six, 12 months down the line um, that symptoms don't get better because immediately after a trauma, it is very normal that your brain goes again over and over and over through it. And your, your adrenergic nervous system is ready. Man, where's the next threat? That's normal. Yeah. Okay, so in the first few days, you need that. But then later down the line, uh, when it becomes entrenched, this behavior, the hypervigilance, the constant, my God. And that's, of course, a problem. Because in my particular case, I, it was a gang assault. I ended up uh, being pretty smashed up um, and I immediately started um, learning martial arts. So for the next four or five years, I was focusing on my direction, on my yeah. fight, so to speak. And then four or five, I mean, this was a very dark time for me. It was the dark time for you. And then suddenly you realize you have a drink and suddenly it goes, <sighs> the pain goes away. Was that the experience with you? What did the alcohol give you when, when you were, when you were going into do that harder time, into that prolonged, things will not get quickly better time? Yeah, it, well, before it was the PTSD was diagnosed, I didn't understand, as I said, what was going on. I just knew things weren't right with me but also I was pushing everyone else away my family my husband at the time um because it was very easy to sit there and say well nobody understands what I'm going through because within my little unit nobody did understand they were from the outside looking in plus I was in a lot of pain obviously with the injuries etc 
Um, so the first drink I had, I think it was mainly because I picked it up because I was unhappy. Um, so I just thought, oh, I'll have a drink. But that very quickly turned into, oh, actually, I feel a bit better. I'll have another one. Um, and then I call it the numbing effect. It actually numbed me. And for a little while, I thought it was helping me sleep because I'd drink a few and then I'd drop off to sleep. Whereas if I didn't have a drink, I was plagued by nightmares. Therefore, I had insomnia. Therefore, I felt lousy the next day. But it wasn't very long before, well, you know, because you've been on the journey, but I would wake up in the morning and need to drink in order to face the day. And then I would have a hangover, so I'd have hair of the dog, and that would start me off again. It was just horrendous. And I thought I was getting away with it. I thought, oh, I'm a functioning alcoholic <laughs> person. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, what I didn't realise, of course, was, um, again, the people around me could see what was happening. But every time they tried to intervene, I was aggressive. I was horrible. Um, not physically aggressive. I was verbally aggressive. And would do everything I could to hide my drinking, um, avoid situations where they might catch me when I was completely, you know, sozzled, that sort of thing. And unfortunately, my husband at the time was not that caring, so he didn't do anything. Um, and it, as I said, it just spiraled. And that, but underneath it all, underlying it all, I was still very, very unhappy but couldn't put my finger. This is where I, this is why I always say the professional help is so important because I could not put my finger on why I was unhappy. I should be happy. I survived a horrendous incident. I have got my life. I've got a future. Um, So really I should be grateful. And people were telling me how grateful I should be, which was making me even more unhappy. So I was drinking even more. Were you happy uh, before the accident? Or the incident, yeah. you want to call it? Truly happy? Yes, but then I, yeah, I felt more in control of my life. Well, that's so a different I, thing. That's not happiness. In control, <laughs> that's a type A personality who runs everything around her. <laughs> oh, God, I was a complete control freak. Um, <laughs> when I was a financial advisor, yes, I was driven, and yes, I had my own company and it, oh. doing very well. But... It's only now, in hindsight, it's, I call it the conditioning. We come out of that womb and we are just conditioned from day one as to what how we should behave, yeah. which I sort of get because otherwise society doesn't function. Mm. And the reason human beings are so successful is because we are collaborative. <clears throat> Therefore, we need a community. Excuse me. <clears throat> I've got scarring in my throat, so... Um, Please, we all need to hydrate. So, guys, if you're listening to this, grab a glass of water, hydrate. (laughs) (laughs) That was the public health warning. Um, Yeah, so um, that's what I've always put it down to. So, yeah, I was conditioned to grow up, get an education. I I did work for other people, but then decided I wanted to be self-employed, get married, I never wanted children, but, you know, get married, go through all this process, have the next bigger house. So move from a flat to a two bed to a four bed to it. And it was that's how we're all brought up. And that's why I thought I was happy back then. 
But I've always said, and I describe it in my book, as the train crash was happening, I believed I was going to die. I honestly thought that's it, particularly when I saw the fireball coming down that carriage at me. And in that split second, my brain went, it has not been worth it. And what it meant by that was my life up until that point had not been worth it because I was working so hard. I was not seeing my family. I would not go out. I would socialize with other financial advisor type people. Mm. Um, But I just wasn't living a quality of life. So when I woke up from the Korean hospital, because my vocal cords had been burnt, I couldn't speak for, oh, it was getting on for three months, I think. Um, So you have a lot of time to think when you can't talk. Mm. (laughs) Um, So I was lying in the hospital bed and I made a promise to myself that I would never, ever have that thought again before I die. So that's what's driven me now. I mean, I still got similar traits of if I see something wrong, I want to put it right or I will get on with putting it right. But at the same time, it's tempered now with the when I have to die the next time. I want to be able to look back on this half of my life and go, boy, that was fun. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I mean, that comes, I mean, that is now 22 years after after the Paddington train crash. And you must admit that was only the start of your trials and tribulations. Because there was all, you, you do, were already saying the two years of your immediate recovery through surgeries, et cetera, um, through the darker times of the depression, of the, of the, the suicidal ideation, of numbing your, your life. Then the fight, I mean, it took you five years to get or make the impact that you ultimately did in um, in causing a royal inquiry, contributing the pressure with pressure to the to the government to actually causing changes to happen in a situation where where essentially privatization prior to that had led to a very different culture to a very different. So many shortcuts. When I looked uh, in preparation for that, when I looked into the things that were wrong in the system, it was actually quite shocking. Um, you think, nah, that can't be. This is sort of the, the most basic things, um, certain safety systems that would maybe cause a train to slow down had it once it had gone through a uh, a warning light, a red light. Oh, no, 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 too expensive. You don't do that. Um, or, or, or certain safety systems to say, okay, hang on, two, two trains are heading towards each other. Nah, nah, let's not have that. Nah, you just think, come on. This is, but it's only with hindsight, and it's only because of the work of people like you, who have not given up. On the contrary, who found a new purpose of life, a new destiny, and that was beautiful. What made that change happen? From I do not want to. I do no longer want to live. I want to numb myself, and even start drinking before the sun even goes up. Um, to okay, let's take on the world. What made that change happen? It was, well, I mean, like a tanker, it took a little while. (laughs) 
um, to turn around. But I think it started because I was progressively getting worse with the drink, um, it, you know, falling over, drunk, um, insisting people paid me attention. Um, you know, when we were on the campaign trail, um, stumbling over words that I thought I was absolutely fine. I was coming across as just jovial and fine. And I wasn't at all. I was coming over as a drunk. So people began to comment to me. People that cared about me were beginning to comment to me. Um, But I think the real turning point, now, this is where I'm lucky. I became friends with a guy over in this country called Simon Weston. And he had been severely burnt in the Falklands. Yeah. Amazing guy. He and I became firm friends. We're very, very good friends. But in those early stages, I hadn't met him up until that point. And I reached out to him and I said, um, can I come and meet you? We were we were both working for a charity yeah. on scarring. And he said, yeah, come to my home. So I went to his home and we spent a day together. And he was amazing because he was the first person I actually turned around and went, I think I've got a problem. And he said, don't tell me, you don't want a cup of tea, you want a glass of wine. And I went, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Priceless. And then you've got to remember, he's a very, very jovial Welshman, and he tells you exactly the way it is. But he said to me, Pam, I've been there, I've done that, I've got the T-shirt. And he then explained all the times, because he, as he said, it wasn't just once. He came out of that and then fell into it again and all this sort of stuff. But the the phrase that he used towards the end, which I will always remember, was, Pam, you can either let the alcohol take control of your life and you will eventually lose everything, or you can take back control and get rid of the alcohol. And that's I actually went home that's from that trip and I threw every single bit of alcohol out of the house. Now I didn't touch alcohol after that for two years at all. I'm very once I made my mind up to do something, I do it. Um now I have gone back, I will admit I now drink, but only socially. And I will only I always have a glass, a tall glass of water with the alcoholic drink, and I have to drink that glass of water before I can have another one. And the maximum I will allow myself is four in one sitting. Mm. And it's just the way that I have control because I know I have a weakness. I had those episodes that I'm not proud of. And I now, but I don't want to deny myself completely. Um, So that's the way I personally have dealt with it and find it quite comfortable. Oh, and I don't drink during the week at all. It's only at the weekend socially. <laughs> the problem, of course, is for us alcoholics uh, who are maybe genetically predisposed a bit more and have a bit more explored that side of our life. Yeah, we have all tried that. Okay, is we tried no beer but only hard liquors. We tried no hard liquors, only beer. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Uh, I, I must say, uh, for me, I, I. I'm really pleased. I'm, I'm really happy for you that you have got that that control. For me, that control goes out that of the window yeah. after the first first <laughs> two free classes. So therefore, well, no, I, there's nothing to. I stop. do. 
I do have um, a relative who is a full-blown alcoholic and has been, but she joined AA about 10 years ago. Mm. Um, So I've sort of lived with her through her journey, and I admire her greatly. Um, But I do think AA is such an excellent Mm. support system and a system to try and tackle it. Um, and yes, she's doing really, really well. Mm. Um, but as she said, it, it's it's like um, smokers, isn't it? Even when you quit, you're never truly an ex-smoker. So even when you quit the alcohol, you're never truly an ex-alcoholic. You all. <laughs> so I do sympathise. I really do. Um, yeah. And I suppose for me, I'm I'm because I'm fearful of falling, going down that route. I'm able to hold myself away from it just, but I'm always aware that it is there. But Pam, alcohol is only one way to escape your reality. You had many other opportunities. You could say going onto the campaign trail was uh, (laughs) maybe a, just as, as, as powerful um, a toxin to, to distract you from what was going on. Um, the, the kind of workaholic, I mean, again, a beautiful way of not having to deal with what is going on. But then again, you had pain. What was your relationship with painkillers? Were they there often? They're often oh, uh, God. <laughs> Where did that go? No, actually, I, I don't know why. I never became addicted to it. Uh, Thankfully, yeah. Um, they they did because I, I was on morphine for two and a half years. Oh wow, yeah. But and they had to wean me off gradually. Absolutely. Um, but it was always under medical supervision. I never really wanted to push it, or yeah. I, I was quite happy with the pain relief as long as I was out of pain. That's as far as I ever wanted to. So maybe I have just haven't got that gene mm. that nice crazy. Nice. And yes, I still am on painkillers. I have been ever since and will be for the rest of my life. But again, I seem to be able to use them on the basis. I only take them in extremis. Beautiful. So if there's other ways I can deal with my pain, I do that instead. I think for many many people who who end up in trouble with the painkillers realize that the painkillers are very effective for the physical pain, but it also helps them with the emotional pain. It numbs the emotional pain. They get the same kind of thing, um, the same kind of relief, so to speak, from the emotional pain. And that is therefore so, so hard to... I don't know whether this is the same in your country as well, but um, uh, I'm an advocate for saying general practitioners should not be allowed to prescribe either antidepressants or painkillers. To me, you need a specialist to treat people before they are then given or have access to these drugs. Because they need, a really, it should be given under supervision. I'm still, 22 years on from the train crash, I still have a psychologist. Mm. I still talk to my psychologist. And when I'm going through a rough patch, because life's like that, he's the first person I will text and then say, can I have a session? Mm. That, if you like, is a healthy reaction. But my GP never suggested that. They just want to chuck pills at you. Sure. 
again, that is a very different, different culture and a very different, and when I say culture, with that I'm not referring to the UK, but maybe a medical system that is not as holistic and is maybe so overwhelmed with all kind of crap that they just say, yeah, yeah come on, here's another pill. Um, I think we- yeah, I'm not, I'm not, sorry, I'm not blaming the GPs at all. Um, you know, that every GP in any country has got a very difficult job because they have to see so many people and they do have drugs companies pushing themselves on them and saying, look, this is the next marvellous drug. Um, but yeah, there's just, particularly with people's mental health, I worry a lot. So true. So true. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, there is, it is such a huge undercurrent of mental health problems in our societies. If you think about the, the prevalence, uh, so how often does depression, what's the chance of depression happening in your lifetime? It's, it's about one in five, one in four. And if you're in Actually, chronic... I, I think if, we should really look at their st stats because when you think about it, we've come through COVID. Yeah. In my opinion, every single human being on this planet alive at the moment has got PTSD. <laughs> touché, touché, yeah. Touché. Um, it is there are clearly uh diagnostic criteria um for PTSD and for depression. So sort of tick boxes that you have to tick. But you're quite right. There is there our life has changed. But then again, whole generations before us have gone through world wars, through through uh, other major, major scenarios. And um the the trauma was there horrific trauma was there so i think let's accept the fact that trauma is part of our life and yeah. there are sometimes days when not six hours go by until something else happens and i just look around and look up in the sky and think what's going on what are you trying to do are you really testing me this much I don't know if there's someone up there, but whoever is up there is taking the mick. Come on. So that is normal. And I think that is what we need to recognize. We are being challenged constantly. And the skill of survival is adaptation, is change, yeah. is growth, is developing habits that allow you to become more resilient. Because you know yeah. shit will happen. And it's just, it's not not if, but when. Okay. So, but, but everyone talks about resilience as if resilience is one thing. It's not. To me, resilience is, is multifaceted. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the biggest thing I ever learned through all my experiences, um, the quick, the one you can instantly do is you teach yourself that anything that happens, you accept the situation. You don't worry about, oh, it shouldn't have happened to me or blah, 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 or get angry or what. You just accept the situation because you can't change it. If you can change it, that's different. But if you can't change it, you go, right, I'll accept it. I'm ready to move on. And that's when all the facets for resilience start popping in because that's when you can then start working out, okay, I need this bit in order to be more resilient. And then I need that bit and I need to plan a strategy or, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, I've always said my resilience is actually made up of 15. And if you think about card, I wish I had some card around. But if you had one piece of card, like a, like a birthday card, 
you can easily bend, tear or fold it, but you know the more layers of that card you can put together, it becomes harder to tear or bend or, you know, rip apart. And that to me is how you should build your own personal resilience. You keep layering it up and then you pick the bits that will actually work because you've accepted whatever is happening very quickly. Beautifully said. I would go one step further by also accepting what has happened to you in the past. And that is just as much building up the resilience. You were saying that you're suffering from PTSD. Now, that is actually quite handy in some circumstances. It made me a very good doctor in trauma settings. It's hard to catch me out because there is this hypervigilance. There is this kind of of being switched on that can be of very great benefit. So if there is a disaster, then you actually want to have that fight and flight going. You want to have that, that, that aspect of you being there. So I actually find it intriguing um, to think about the PTSD as something positive, as, as reframing it to a survival mechanism that is there potentially to help me in future not necessarily always to be to be such a negative thing i well i sorry ladies first ladies first (laughs) no i was going to say that um i've often said i mean i it is when i came through the train crash i always refer to myself now as pre-pam and post-pam using the train crash as a watershed the pre-PAM, I look back on the person I was, and I don't like them. And had the train crash not happened, I would just be an older version of that person. Whereas the post-crash PAM, because of, as you quite rightly say, your PTSD and having to change and adapt to all your different change circumstances, I much prefer the person I am now. I'm softer. I'm friendlier. I'm, I put my fan, friends and family first. You know, I, I'm still a bit of a workaholic once I get involved, I, but that's partly because I get excited all the time. Oh. Um, I want to be kind to people. I, but the main thing and the, my raison d'etre for what I do now is very much I want people to be happy. Oh. It's never going to happen. I appreciate that, but I'm going to do my damnedest or my little bit to try and help them reach whatever their state of happiness is because we're not on this planet for that long. And I know we're getting into things that people reel off, life is short and all this sort of stuff. But believe me, having faced death, I can tell you, you you learn how precious it is. This is my second chance, which is leading to my point. I've always said, and I say it in my book as well at the end, I will not negate the pain and suffering that I have been through and my fellow survivors went through. However, the train crash is the best thing to have happened to me. Absolutely. It's only when you're in the darkness that you can see the light and really appreciate the light for what it is. If you have never, how shall I say that? You take your feet for granted until you hurt yourself and you can't walk and you hobble around. You take your eyesight for granted. We take everything for bloody granted. Um, until someone takes something away from you. And then suddenly you realize, really, 
how how wrong you were or how how superficial your your thoughts were and i could not i could not agree more with you that's exactly how i feel and it's virtually the same with every single guest i've got on my show most of my guests have gone through hell and back and just kept going and became new a new better versions of themselves and often enough it comes up either in a discussion or i ask them directly if you had a time machine would you go back and what would you change and i cannot yes. recall a single a person who actually said no um i would change everything no most people said no actually no i wouldn't change a thing because otherwise well, i wouldn't be the person thing. i'll change one thing which is i would be married to brad pitt <laughs> I don't know. I never had a beer with Brett. So I cannot actually comment on him. It is, I think there is this fantasy there. Okay, I'll give you that, Pam. <laughs> if you got but, a time machine, why can't you get your fantasies? <laughs> okay, I give you that one. <laughs> Brett, if you're out there, okay, if you're listening to that, <laughs> I know where Pam lives. <laughs> <laughs> oh no this is just and it's that kind of humor we can nowadays actually take the mick out of ourselves i remember certainly <laughs> i actually like that pre and post pam i like that um it's certainly the younger version of myself god was i a dick oh I was so <laughs> honestly oh god aren't we all though I mean, oh. I think we all look back on our 20s and we just cringe, don't we? <laughs> true. Very true. I mean, I don't know about you, but I look back on some of the pictures of me in my 20s. The fashion. Look, we've got to say, the 1970s had no idea about fashion. Absolutely none. <laughs> hey, shoulder pads in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and big loopy earrings for you girls. Oh, I love that. <laughs> no, I was I was always a new romantic back in the 80s. Thank nice. you very much. Oh, no, no, no. I had at one station in the 70s, I had a perm. I mean, a big perm. Really? <laughs> oh, you've got to send me a picture of that. <laughs> Honestly, it's bitter <laughs> with hindsight. Oh, God. <laughs> But that was when we were younger. Do you, do you find in the modern age, because I notice, like, that I've noticed young lads now are getting perms again. Oh, and I'm thinking, it didn't look good back in the 70s. It's not going to look good now, <laughs> is it? <laughs> but then again, which young person listens to their elders? Huh? Which young person? They, they all need to make their, their oh, mistakes. I mean... Bloody hell. I mean, nowadays we are lucky because, I mean, when the wild side of me had an earring, you know, one earring. <laughs> nowadays you've got piercing, branding and whatever, tattoos on your face. <laughs> so maybe we got away out <laughs> lightly with it. Simpler age, yeah. Oh, God. But, I mean, here you are and it is, you're... You are constantly changing. And we in the preamble, guys, when before we started this interview, Pam and I had a bit of a chat because I tried to figure out, well, wow, here's this woman driven, uh, has changed the UK literally. The whole country has changed because of Pam and her, a part of her drive. And I thought, well, okay, that is that takes you a little bit in your life, but what's happening now? Where are you going? What are you doing? And... I think that is the amazing part with you because you keep changing 
you keep transforming. There are new challenges coming along. And but how do you deal with challenges? I mean, you I see you as this kind of superwoman charging ahead. <laughs> what what happens when the darkness comes? How do you behave on those days when oh, the rain yeah. cloud seems to be over you? I have made room for it. Um, this is what I was saying about you you build it into the fabric of you yourself. Hmm. Um, so yes, I mean. 90% of the time, I'm fine, and I'm charging along. And as my psychologist keeps nagging me about, I'm charging along far too fast. Because, of course, <laughs> I, do have, I do have physical injuries, but then this is where you start balancing off the, well, life is too short, I need to get on with it type of thing. Uh -huh. um, and I do get burnout, so I can keep going. And then it happens about twice a year. My body will just go, bang, that's enough. And that's when I feel a huge depression episode coming on. And I'm sure everyone can identify with this, that sometimes you wake up and your eyebrows feel really dark and heavy. And just you can hardly there are days when I can't get out of bed. I can't eat. I can't drink water. I Just nothing. Um, and I used to fight it. And they do say, actually, in the DSM-5, that... Um, if you are of, um, uh, you know, a strong driven person, actually depression, because you fight it, you can make it worse. Mm. So I've now, when I feel that stage coming on, I stop. It doesn't matter what I'm doing, I will stop. And I will give my body the time and my brain to recoup. And I slob out. I don't do my hair. I don't do my face. I don't wash sometimes. Mm. Um, I'm lying around in my pyjamas yep. feeling awful watching daytime TV feeling even worse when I watch daytime TV um, I don't touch the alcohol whatsoever during those periods because I know it would be too easy to slide um, and I just wait until it and then at some point usually five to seven days later I'll then just suddenly feel a bit lighter and mm. think my eyebrows are lifted up again and that's <laughs> And that's when I know I can slowly start getting back to things. So I just drop off the face of the earth and I send a text to everyone that might worry about me to say, I'm having a fug. That's what I call it. Excellent. Um, leave, leave me alone. Excellent. Excellent. I just had one of them a few days ago um, where I just actually needed to take two, three days out. And I was just, nope, my body told me where to go. And yeah. it was just not my body, actually, my soul told me where to go. There was, yeah. I was losing empathy. I was just, everything was aligning. And nope, I gave in. And yep. So I, <laughs> like you, I gave myself permission. And nowadays, I refuse to be ashamed about it. I refuse to be guilty because I've, I've learned that these evil twins of shame and guilt. They are not helping you whatsoever. On the contrary, it's normal to feel like that. We are living in societies where the praise is towards this go-getting, saccharine smile, give me a Coke and I'm going to be sexy. And it's that kind of bullshit, bullshit. No one is saying, hey, find your serene level where you function really well. No, it needs to be up there. I need to be happy. I need to be happy all the time. Guess what? No, it doesn't work like that. Okay, unless you're on drugs, and then even then, yeah. it doesn't work on that. Okay. Well, so I've, I've 
when people have asked me now, am I happy? I'll, I mean, generally the answer is yes, but I actually call it content. I've actually, I've reached a point where I've managed to um, get my career going again, but also rearrange my home life and, and I call it contentment. And somebody turned around to me and said, oh, content, that's not a very nice word. It means you've settled. And I said, not at all. I just feel calm and peaceful. And I like life like that. Mm. And life actually becomes a lot less complicated <laughs> when you are in that content stage. And I'll take that above trauma and, and, and harassment. And that's also part of the reason why I moved recently from the southeast of England which is really fast paced and it's still all round about finances and, and most of it's London centric. Um, and I'm now living at the top of North Wales. And that is, it's done intentionally because I want to slow pace down and I want to have time to go off and walk up a mountain if I want, if I've got time and go and sit by the sea and um, just remember that life can be simple. It's a choice thing. You are saying it. I was about to rephrase uh, what you just said, but you did it more or less yourself. It is a choice. You are now making room for that. You're actually cultivating uh, a state in which your body can exist in peace with itself, where no adrenaline and cortisol needs to rush through your veins. And if the levels drop, you top up with some coffee and keep going, going. That's all quite good. And that's all quite fun. Uh, but you can't keep existing like that. No, you need to actually have some time out. And it's something that I'm only learning now in my 50s, honestly. Yeah. It is in the past, I was go-getter, go-getter, just go, 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 crash, boom, 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 bust. Uh, yeah. And that was just, yeah, like you, about twice a year, major, major burnouts. Exactly. That's pretty much my my cycle as well. Nowadays, much better, uh, much better, but I mean, less, less immense ups and downs, but still life has its way. Um, there are ups, there are downs, but just nowadays yeah. I'm, I'm living with them in a much nicer way and accept them for what they are. So no, that's yeah. beautiful. The only, the only thing I have to contend with, I can see in the future is because that is something I'm addicted to is the adrenaline of change because I've got used to change and being able to navigate it, if you like, um, if my life gets too boring, <laughs> I tend to chuck a, little, I tuck it, chuck a little grenade into it just to see what will happen. <laughs> Don't you it's worry. More, it's more out of curiosity than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> You're a nuts, woman. You're nuts. <laughs> but I understand you. I've got the same nutter living in me. Um, so you're absolutely right. But having said that, you don't actually need to to be too invent uh, inventive. What is that a word? You don't need to invent too many things to make uh, uh, life interesting, because after all, there are so many things that are wrong in our society. And I believe you are a woman who has tasted the power of taking on an institution or a, a, a system that is set in a certain way. And if you see something wrong, I think you will speak out. And you yeah, have proven it already. 
if there was an injustice, I can't bear injustice. I hate it. Absolutely hate it. And if it crosses my path, then I would say something and I don't care who, what or what institution it is. However, with everything that's going on around the world with establishments at the moment, I have to say nine times out of ten, I ignore it Mm. only because I'm aware of it. Mm. But I personally, um, and again, this came through COVID, or during that lockdown period, I hoped that when it finished or when we all came out of it, I don't think it will ever finish completely, people would be kinder to each other. There'd be more humanity about everything and we we would be more tolerant and all this. And then the people that are supposed to be governing us go back to doing exactly what they were doing before. Mm. And it's also pointless. I don't care who went to a party during COVID. <laughs> you know, it's just, I'm sort of starting thinking there are far more important things happening around the world we do not need to be distracted by internal politics or Trump trying to do some weird stuff on social media. I don't care what it is. So almost I've now got to the stage where they're up here somewhere. And yes, there's a noise and I can hear them and I pay attention every now and then. But otherwise, I just generally ignore them. If I could write into my inland revenue over here and say, I don't want to be part of your club, I don't... <laughs> want to be part of your club anymore i would interesting interesting no you're as you... sorry i've just realized i've done the up the revolution haven't i <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no it is just beautiful because here is a woman who has gone through hell and back literally including the fireball come on um and then uh really changed changed a nation uh, and made it a better nation. Um, not many people can say that. So therefore, to hear your journey and the lessons that you have learned and that you keep learning, to be privileged enough that you share them with me and with my my audience is just gold. Come on. So I, I am very grateful for these insights because ultimately it is why the hell do you want to learn all these lessons the hard way yourself? And you can actually talk to people like you and actually figure out, hey, you know, what, what was and hard be, for them. be open to listening. I mean, one of the things I really enjoy when I'm doing an event and speaking at the event is not standing up on stage and speaking. It's the mixing with the audience afterwards or beforehand. Yeah. Because everyone has a story and people are fascinating. It, you know, some of the stories are just brilliant. And do you know, somebody who's become a friend recently, um, it turned out he was a real-life explorer. Who gets that these days? Exactly. <laughs> There's not too much left to explore. Well, no, but, I mean, he he's a sort of lovely, eccentric Englishman who, um, with his umbrella and bowler hat, get this hitchhike all the way to Japan and then just kept on going. He ended up in Vietnam and... Uh, he now works with Mongolians and nomads in Africa and just amazing chap. And I would not have met him had it not been for listening. <laughs> it is wisely said that you have got one mouth, two ears, and you should use them in the same ratio. Um, so <laughs> many of us don't really <laughs> adhere to that too closely. <laughs> 
Oh, wow. Okay. And that's beautiful. So no, it is, uh, we are all have got choices to make. And I think people like you and me who have gone through darkness are far more willing to make the choices now that serve us better in the future, rather than be maybe tempted. Well, we still are tempted. Okay. But maybe 95 out of, out of 100, I make a good choice. Tonight, I chose to have a pizza. That's fair call. That might not be the best choice of my nutrition over the last week. But at the same token, I made the choice and I made it intentional. I said, no, tonight I'm going to treat, treat myself. Tonight I'm going to flock my, my gut microbiome with some very unhealthy stuff. But it puts a smile on my face and I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Okay, so that's that's it. So choices. These are very active things. They don't happen to you. You make those choices. You take those actions. And that's what life is about. That's what where, where we can make a difference, where we can choose to become a voice that needs to be heard, like in your case. There are, there are so many things you can do in your life where you leave your destiny, where you leave your, where you leave a mark on this earth, where people will remember you for all the right well, I reasons. Don't, I, I don't, for me, that, that's not really what drives me towards the end. It, it's still going back to my deathbed thing. I, I want to be able to look back and say, that was fun, or yes, I did make a difference, but that's not... I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't need people to miss me or anything like that. Beautiful. I mean, I what what was that phrase about treading gently? Um, I think it's lovely if you do make a difference, but yes, tread gently. <laughs> and the choices sometimes hit you, and there isn't always a way to drive through them. But then you just have to take the time out to work out that's the goal I want. How do I get to it by diverting around whatever the problem is? <laughs> it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Pam, nowadays you're going out on the speaking circuit and you are touching the lives of so many hundreds and thousands of people there. And hopefully now with COVID settling down, you can become more active and you can become more, more, more the traveler that you're destined to yeah. be. Uh, that is fine. If, if people really find your story fascinating, where can they catch up with you? Tell us a bit about where can they find you? Okay, well, obviously my website, which is simply pamwarren.co.uk, um, or, I mean, get in touch. They'll find me on all the old-fashioned platforms. I'm not a TikToker. I just, I'm, I looked at that and just went, no, sorry, it ain't happening. Um, but I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, I'm still on Twitter, although I think Twitter's dying a death, isn't it? Um, I'm on YouTube. And again, you just type in my name and up I'll pop. Oh. But, it, you know, if you want to get in touch directly, I've got my email, which is just info at pamwarren.co.uk. So I will pick it up at some point. And I do make a point where I can of getting back. It may be a few days later um, because I don't know when I'll be on the road or whatever. But I do try to get back to people because I've always been brought up with that um, treat others how you want to be treated mm. yourself which is beautiful 
And of course, before you guys get in touch, maybe learn a bit more about Pam, because she has written a book. So why not look out oh, for yeah. it? So Pam, show us. There you go. From behind the book. mask. <laughs> Indeed. The lady of the um, mask. There it is. It's on my website. It's cheaper than Amazon mm -hmm. um, on my website. And if you go to my website, I sign it for you. <laughs> it's a must. I will certainly do that. Uh, I did not get around to to read your book beforehand, just because I had such a beautiful flurry of of guests that come onto my show, and every one of them has written a book. And there is only so much I can read. <laughs> so therefore, but yours will definitely be on my to do list, and there's no doubt about that. So you can already warm up the pen and start signing. Okay. <laughs> so no. Well, I'm assuming I'm assuming all guests do this too but as the host of the show then you'll be getting a free copy oh oh that's cool yeah, no absolutely. unfortunately not everyone is as civilized but having said that <laughs> future guests um just take a note <laughs> i like <laughs> no it is just beautiful because here is your voice here is your here is the pam that and her story that is so worthwhile reading and learning from so therefore, you know, not everyone can hear you live, but they certainly can get your vibe and your passion can read that in your book. So therefore, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to do. So no two ways around it. And if you guys watched here out there, you might as well look around for that little gem. My steps to sobriety. There you go. <laughs> and I love, I love what you were saying about the stories and talking to people about their stories, because that's that's indeed two projects that I'm working on right now. One uh, book is called Depression Light to Me in which I bring female storytellers together and they share their stories. So we've got uh, 17, 16, 17 uh, storytellers now together. We've just stopped the recruitment for that and are in the editing phase. So that is hopefully coming out within two months. And it's yeah, all about the, the chameleon of depression and the way it can manifest itself in different lives of different women. And so this is an amazing, amazing book. The, and, and there is uh, the, the male side, the male book uh, is equally coming out with a bit of a two month delay uh, behind that. And at the moment, I, I wanted to call it Boys Don't Cry or Men Don't Cry, but all these titles were taken. And now we are, we are at the moment, we are at fuck depression <laughs> so our title is going is changing constantly so we're actually not yet 100% sure of what it will be like but equally it will be 16 uh, men who actually have are telling their story about their depression you what were saying something no i was about to suggest the title for you yeah go for it i can't find a, i can't find a title so i'm depressed now <laughs> Oh, bloody hell. No, that's the fate of every every author in this world, okay? <laughs> that's our own, uh, on a uh, bipolar kind of system. <laughs> no, guys, I had a fantastic time, Pam. I'm so grateful oh, that you, you that you found the time and, and joined me here on my platform to make this world a bit of a better place, one interview at a time. And I'm very grateful and I wish you all the energy and all the, the, the possibilities to go out there and keep going with, with the hard work that you're doing with the hard work, but the great work because you're touching lives and you're changing lives. 
you're opening eyes. That's a beautiful, beautiful journey. So thank you for what you're doing. And yeah, who knows, you, maybe the new and improved Pam in a year or two comes back onto <laughs> my show um, as a completely reincarnated and re reinvigorated, uh, I don't know, a new Pam, because we all are changing. So who knows what will happen to you? <laughs> who knows, indeed. And as I keep saying, I'm not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Guys, thank you very much for tuning in and look down there into the description of the YouTube video or of the show. You've got all the links there to Pam Warren and go out there and check her out. Otherwise, live with passion and look after yourself. Bye. Dream.